0: okay good morning one of the things who get this all adjusted between glasses and masks and earphone you know it's like there's too much going on Um, one of the things I love about our church is that we get to hear four passages of Scripture each week that's particularly helpful when you're preaching because it gives you lots of options It's always interesting to me that I usually have a clear sense of the passage that I'm being uh, prompted to preach on. And this week was no exception. As I read our passages for this morning, Psalm 37 really spoke to me. And I think it's because we are surrounded by so much evil, people who act in evil ways, systems that enable evil to flourish, and events that can only be described as evil. Now, we know from Ephesians 6 that our ultimate struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil that work through individuals who have given themselves over completely to evil and to wickedness. Even so, it's hard to keep this focus when we see people doing such wicked things. And it surely seems that they're not only getting away with it, but they are actually prospering in the process. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like there are a lot of examples of this today, perhaps even more than ever, all around the world and right here in our midst. It can be hard not to become anxious or to get angry. But this is exactly what Psalm 37 urges us to do. Do not fret and refrain from anger. So I don't know about you, but I feel especially in need of being reminded of this today. So this morning I want to look at Psalm 37, focusing especially on the first four verses. This psalm addresses our response to those who do evil. It doesn't deal with the larger question of why there's evil to begin with. That's another sermon, and I'm not sure it's one that I want to preach. But this Psalm addresses, is addressed to the righteous as both a warning and an encouragement about how to respond to the wicked. So we'll first consider the character of the wicked, and then we're gonna focus on the commands that are given to the righteous, both negative and positive. But before we look at this Psalm, I want to talk about wisdom literature in the Bible, which includes the book of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and a bunch of Psalms. In this literature, you find an emphasis on two ways, or two paths. There's the path of righteousness and the path of evil. These paths are often starkly contrasted. The division of the world into the righteous and the evil can seem simplistic or even naive. But these two groups and these two paths are presented to teach us how to recognize the outcome of each group and to choose wisely to follow the path of the righteous. So these are not predetermined groups of people or categories. They are examples and illustrations. In today's psalm, we encounter the apparent prosperity of the wicked, And we are urged not to walk down the path of the wicked by being envious of them or being anxious or getting angry. Instead, we are urged to walk down the path of righteousness with those who trust the Lord and commit their way to him. As we all know, the world does not neatly divide between these two camps, but wisdom literature presents these stark contrasts so that we can learn and be wise. Now, in the Psalms, this emphasis on the two ways is seen right away in Psalm 1, which contrasts the blessing of the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. This one is like a tree that flourishes and it, it does not wither in any circumstances, And last week, we had the wonderful opportunity to hear this from Chelsea and the passage out of Jeremiah. But the wicked are blown away like chaff, that useless husk that is removed and discarded in the process of threshing. This emphasis on two ways continues in Psalm 2, which contrasts the wicked and the righteous as it plays out on a cosmic level among the nations and rulers. And I'll come back to Psalm 2. So this is the background that we need for Psalm 37. It's a stark contrast between the wicked and the righteous. In fact, this psalm feels more like a chapter out of Proverbs than it feels like a psalm. It repeats over and over a number of themes pertaining to the righteous and the wicked. And it actually doesn't have an obvious structure, at least not obvious to me. Um, But it clearly focuses on these issues and also on a very troubling issue the apparent success of the wicked. So now let's consider the nature of the wicked, which is powerfully depicted throughout this psalm. And we got a glimpse of it when Moe read the, sorry, Ethan, (laughs) Moe read all the other passages, but when Ethan led us through the psalm um, and we could see some of these indications. But if you continue on through the rest of the psalm, you'll find that the wicked plot against the righteous. They exploit and murder the poor. They are deceitful and oppressive. They're ruthless and they're wealthy. Now, it's important to stress that being wealthy does not make someone wicked. In fact, it's very clear in Luke's Gospel and in Acts that those people who use their wealth for the kingdom are blessed and praised. So the problem is not wealth in and of itself. The problem is that these individuals became wealthy because they were wicked. They exploited, they oppressed, they deceived to get their wealth. And from outward appearances, it appears that they are getting away with it. Thank you very much. They're enjoying success. Things don't change much, do they, from the time of that psalm? or the examples that fill our news feeds uh, today. But Psalm 37 opens with a strong commandment to the righteous. Do not fret, and do not be jealous or envious of those who do wrong. Why? Because reality is different from what it appears. There is more to it than we can see. Being powerful and successful does not guarantee that these people are getting ahead. Instead, the wicked are like grass. This imagery would have been very powerful for the ones who originally heard this psalm. They would be well familiar with the beautiful green hills of Galilee and Judea. Makes us all wanna go, right? Um, In the spring, that can become dry and brown, sometimes in a matter of days, if there are hot desert winds blowing. Now, I like to joke that being raised in San Diego gives me a certain advantage for studying the Bible. And that's because the climate in San Diego is very similar to the climate in Israel. In March and April, the hills around San Diego are filled with beautiful green grasses. Can't even talk. And beautiful wildflowers. It's stunning. The poppies makes me homesick. But less than a month later, these same hills can be absolutely brown, completely uh, with all of the grasses and the wildflowers completely withered and shriveled up. And in fact, later on in this psalm in verse 20, we're told that the wicked will vanish like grass that is burned in a wildfire. And unfortunately, that's also a very powerful part of growing up in San Diego. But from God's perspective, this is how it is with the wicked. Their power and success are an illusion. They are as fleeting as the spring grasses. In Psalm 2, we see this reality on the world stage. The nation's rage and the people's plot and the one enthroned in heaven laughs at them. Why? Because they are completely powerless before the Lord and his anointed. Their miserable schemes are laughable compared with the might and the sovereignty of the true God. That's why we're commanded not to fret or to be angry or jealous. The apparent success of the wicked is not what it seems and what is real is their final destiny. God is not mocked by those who oppose him. Their success does not diminish his sovereignty or call into question his power. Again, God is not mocked. He loves justice. So the ways of the wicked are fundamentally opposed to God. The Psalm then continues with a series of positive commands to the righteous. We're to trust the Lord and do good. We're to dwell in the land. We're to take delight in the Lord. We are to commit our way to Him and to trust Him. We are to be still and to wait patiently. These may be positive commands, but they are hard. They feel so powerless in the face of evil. They don't seem nearly as effective or satisfying As expressing our anger and our frustration. Now it's important to realize that there is room for righteous indignation. It's good and right to be angered by the things that anger God, to be angered by injustice in any form, by the exploitation of the poor and the needy, um, by the, the oppression of those who are on the margins, But we can often be on the threshold of moving beyond that righteous indignation to becoming the judge of the universe and taking matters into our own hands. To be clear, we must oppose injustice wherever we can and we need to advocate for those who do not have a voice whenever we can. But we need to do this in a way that acknowledges the true judge of the universe and submits to his sovereign timetable. And we need to do this by trusting in God's character and perfect justice instead of fretting, which the psalmist tells us in verse eight can actually lead us to evil. When we dwell in anger and frustration, we open ourselves up to bitterness and spiritual barrenness, neither of which can accomplish God's purposes. Most of these positive commands concern what we're focusing on. Instead of fretting over evil, we are to trust the Lord. It's easy to dwell on evil. And as I said, our news feeds are especially effective in causing us to do this. But it's hard to focus on the Lord and His goodness. We have to be intentional to remember his faithfulness in the past and to look for the ways that he is acting in the present. Perhaps, ironically, when we fret over evil, we are less likely to do good. We miss those good works that the Lord has already prepared for us to walk into, as Ephesians 2 tells us. As we keep redirecting our focus to the Lord, keep trusting Him, and keep dwelling in His goodness, something does shift inside of us. And this is how true righteousness occurs, by trusting in the Lord and persevering in faith in the midst of evil and wickedness. I like to think of this as an act of defiance and resistance. Rather than be sucked into the despair that seems so pervasive, we can defy and resist that despair by setting our trust on the Lord. We don't have to succumb to the hopelessness and the anxiety that's all around us. We can defy and resist that by willfully and intentionally naming the Lord's goodness and clinging to that. And as a community, we can help each other to do this by reciting his acts of faithfulness to each other and by helping others and ourselves to identify the places where the goodness of God is working in our midst. Understanding the destiny of the wicked and trusting in the Lord are key themes in this psalm. But verse 3 introduces another one. Here we are commanded to dwell in the land. Dwelling in the land clearly recalls the promises that were given to Abraham, although he never actually possessed the land. Eventually, the land was possessed by Israel. Now, it's really important to understand that the land was not some type of reward to either Abraham or Israel. The text does not tell us why Abraham was chosen, or why Israel was chosen. Instead, the biblical text focuses on the land as the place where Israel could live out its covenantal relationship with God so that the surrounding nations might be able to observe. This is what Deuteronomy makes clear. Dwelling in the land is completely bound up with God's presence. For the psalmist, on one level, this would have been understood as living in the physical land of Israel. But notice how often the psalmist talks about inheriting the land as a future reality. You can look at verses 10 or 12. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous hints that the physical land of Israel was not the ultimate fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham. This is made absolutely clear, as all things are, in the epistle to the Hebrews, where in chapter 11, we are told that Abraham was not looking for an earthly place, but was looking to the city of God, the city that is to come. Now, this promise of dwelling in the land is repeated twice in the passage that we read together. And as you go on in the rest of the psalm, it's repeated three more times. So clearly, this is a major theme in this psalm. And it's interesting that Jesus picks up this theme in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He starts out by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By this, he means, Blessed are those who know their true spiritual bankruptcy apart from Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom. It's not the powerful, it's not those who are resting on their own self perceived righteousness who enter his kingdom. Instead, it's those who recognize their desperate need for Jesus. And he goes on to say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not only does he quote from Psalm 37, but he also seems to have the context of the psalm in view where the, where the meek, or in the translation we read, the lowly in verse 12, are deliberately contrasted with the arrogance and the deceit of the wicked. The meek are the ones who know that true power is counterintuitive. It doesn't come from manipulation or coercion. It doesn't come from raw power or exploitation. It doesn't come from fretting or getting angry. It comes from trusting the Lord and waiting patiently on him. These are the ones who inherit the earth. And although this is a little bit far off from our passage, I think the switch from inheriting the land in Psalm 37 to inheriting the earth in Matthew 5 points to the new creation. What an inheritance we are given. This could take us to the book of Revelation, which I would love to go to, but I'm going to reel myself in (laughs) because I would camp out there the rest of the morning. So getting back to Psalm 37, what does it mean for us to dwell in the land today? As I said, dwelling in the land cannot be separated from God's presence. So dwelling in the land begins with our relationship with Jesus and living out that relationship in the earthly location where he has placed us right now, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our daily lives. Like Israel, we are to be a witness to those who surround us, living our lives in such a way that they can see God accomplishing his purposes in and through us. It's like we're on stage, displaying our lives and gifts before a world that is longing to see goodness and righteousness. This does not suggest some kind of performance-based approach to life. So perhaps it might be better if we think about a fishbowl. We get to live our lives out, warts and all. Actually, I never do done well. One won't go there, so to speak. So that those around us can see the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives as he transforms us into his likeness and uses us to point to his glory. But like Abraham... Dwelling in the land also redirects our attention to our true inheritance, the city of God, the city that is to come. From here, the psalmist moves on to delighting in the Lord, and I'm really loving this one. Yesterday, Michelle Becker sent me a short video of their grandson taking his first steps. He is absolutely delighted in his accomplishment. Hands up and wobbly steps but there is sheer giggly delight on his face. And this is what we are urged to do, to take giggly delight in the Lord, to delight ourselves in the gift of sunshine, to delight ourselves in the beauty of creation, to delight ourselves in the fact that he knows us by name, to delight ourselves in the amazing gift of his word, to delight ourselves in his goodness, and that we get to live with him and with each other. Hands up, giggly delight in the one who blesses us more than we could ever know. And in this delight, he gives us the deepest desires of our hearts, desires that we didn't even know that we had, desires for worship and praise, desires for justice and peace, Desires to be used in ways that we could never imagine in his kingdom. Desires so much greater than the desires of our limited imaginations. Or unworthy desires that we cling to in the hope that they'll somehow bring us life. Or small desires that pale in comparison to what he offers. Now, the rest of the psalm continues to uh, stress the ultimate destruction of the wicked, who eventually will be no more. This is contrasted with the protection and the vindication of the righteous, who will shine like light, and the justice of their cause will be like the sun. The righteous will enjoy great peace, as is noted in verse 12. This recalls the peace or the shalom that was in the Garden of Eden when the first humans enjoyed being rightly related in every possible way. They were rightly related to God. They were rightly related to each other. And they were rightly related to themselves. How much time are we trying to figure out how to work that one out? And they were rightly related to all of God's good creation. So this final piece and shalom concludes with a series of additional promises about the Lord's protection and his provision. So what can we take away from this psalm today? As I mentioned earlier, I think much of this psalm encourages us to consider what we're focused on. So first, we are not to focus on evil or to fret when it seems like those who commit evil are getting away with it or to be in any way envious of those who have apparent success and wealth. This psalm warns us that such fretting can lead to evil itself, as I mentioned. But this can be hard when people manipulate and deceive and get ahead. Or perhaps, this happened to me one time, we've been passed over for a promotion because of someone else's scheming. Or perhaps we've been wronged and somebody actually got away with it. Instead, we need to focus on things from God's perspective. Evil does not ultimately win. God does. This psalm urges us to view present realities with a tenacious hope for our future, where God's justice prevails and where his people are vindicated. It's not the powerful and the wicked who inherit the land, but the faithful meek. If our world feels upside down right now, then we can be confident that God will make it right side up. In the meantime, we get to trust the Lord and we get to delight in His ways. We get to live life together with other believers and we get to participate in His calling and His purpose for our lives. Right where we are, right here, right now, where we live and work, dwelling in His presence and experiencing his peace. In a sense, this psalm urges us to be content with what we have. And to learn how to delight in that as a gift from God. Finally, I was struck by the other passages that were read today. This was Moe reading the Joseph story. Joseph offers us a picture of the Lord's faithfulness to the righteous. And the vindication in their vindication in the face of horrible injustice and evil what Joseph endured and encountered. And yet, God proved himself to be faithful and Joseph was righteous. Our reading from Luke, as Stephanie so well drew out, takes us well beyond fretting over the wicked to the point where we can actually love and pray for our enemies. That is counterintuitive. There is nothing quite like praying for someone, however, that changes our own perspective and realigns us with the Lord. Praying for enemies offers us an example of what doing good looks like in Psalm 37. Finally, from the reading from 1 Corinthians 15, remind, this reminds us that evil does not prevail. Instead, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, because of him, we will be raised imperishable. We will be raised in glory we will be raised in power. Indeed, it is truly the meek who inherit the earth and dwell in the Lord's presence forever. Amen.